Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey guys, today I'm talking to Dr. David Katz. He really doesn't need any introduction, but because we have to introduce, uh, we're going to do it anyway. So I'm going to have David introduce himself. David, welcome to the show. Zubin, great to be with you. Thank you very much. And, and a quick shout out to our mutual friend, Dr. Tom Rafai, who introduced us. Yes. Uh, Tom heads up Reality Meets Science. Uh, does a great public service there. Uh, and he actually uh, is involved in the True Health Initiative. He writes uh, News of the Day uh, column, edits that for us. We appreciate that very much. Great guy. But uh, you know, I've admired your work for a long time, so it's great to have, have the opportunity to chat. And when we were chatting about whether or not we were going to chat and record, yeah, yeah. You know, the conversation just flowed so easily. So, yeah, it, it seemed like uh, like a, a, an excellent match. So really glad to be with you. Um, it just, you know, by way of background and inevitably, you know, we're going to talk about the pandemic. So I, I trained in internal medicine and really, I, I think what is most relevant to this discussion is my native penchant for seeing the big picture. You know, there, there's the, the, the famous liability of missing the forest for the trees. And, and funny enough, as erudite as they can be, the world's best scientists are very prone to that because one of the things that science tends to inculcate is reductionism, staying in your lane, staying in your channel. And of course, you know, if that becomes a tunnel, you see everything through that tunnel everything outside the tunnel you're prone to miss. And, and in fact, you know, th this is true of science in general. It's true of medicine where everything is so hyper-specialized, right? So, no, I'm sorry, that's your left knee. I specialize in the right knee. You have to go see my colleague, that kind of thing. I'm the opposite of that. So when I was training in internal medicine, you know, much as I appreciated the, the opportunity to be there, uh, you know, in the moments of, of most urgent need and take care of people, which is an incredible privilege. It doesn't get the attention it deserves when we talk about medicine and burnout. You know, being the one that people turn to in their moments of, of greatest need and anguish is an incredible privilege. It's, a, I, it's, I it's, it's like a it, sacred privilege, that space that you have together. It's sacred. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it is. It's sacred space, no question about it. And And, and the most deeply gratifying experiences of my life have involved that you know the, the the nothing you can do in public health nothing you can do at scale replaces the poignancy you know of that intimate connection with another person or a family and, and being there in the moments of greatest need so you know i, I really fully appreciated that <clears throat> but i was also very much impressed with the big picture and of course you know when you're training in internal medicine you're in the hospital 100 hours a week so you're sort of soaking in the lore uh, of the hospital and, and its particular epidemiology. And 
I, I was struck by the fact that easily eight out of 10 hospital beds were filled with people who had stuff they never needed to get. Yep. And that really troubled me. And I thought, you know, can I, can I contentedly spend the next, the rest of my career dealing with all of this human misery that never needed to happen when maybe I could play a role in actually preventing it from happening. So I, I started thinking, I, there's got to be more to the story than this. I started shopping around and found the preventive medicine residency program at Yale. And so I did a second residency in preventive medicine, public health, focused on chronic disease epidemiology. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. My career clinical teaching research has been focused on adding years to life, adding life to years. Uh, over recent years, it's also been very much focused on the health of the planet. There are no healthy people on a ruined planet. And, and seeing the big picture. My preferential focus, unlike some of my colleagues who have opined uh, in prominent places about the pandemic, has not been infectious disease per se. It's been more chronic disease. But that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a difference of degree, not kind. I'm trained in outbreak investigation. I'm trained in epidemiology. And this pandemic is about a whole lot more than just the virus. And, and that's what drew me into it, commenting on that, right? There, there's more going on. There's more than one way for a pandemic to hurt people. It's not just by infecting them. And, and, so you, here we are. And, and you know, and this is why I wanted you to do that intro because all of what you just said becomes acutely relevant for the conversation we're gonna have because there are a lot of people online that are opining about the pandemic in ways that are useful and unuseful. And the armchair epidemiologists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you and I actually had a similar path in that we both, got rather frustrated seeing those five to eight, you know, five to eight out of 10 people in those hospital beds that didn't need to be there if they just had good outpatient, preventative, holistic care that took into account nutrition and exercise and social connection and spirituality and whatever it is that, that we don't, we, as in our training, when, when you said we, we kind of steep in this pool of reductionism, it's kind of really very true. We're kind of conditioned that way. And listen, there's not anything in particular wrong with that. It's just that if you never do get a more 30,000 foot holistic connected integral view of it, you're, you're not gonna be able to talk about it. So what you just said establishes the fact that, first of all, we're both coming from the same place, but second of all, you have a unique vantage point to be able to talk about what we're gonna talk about, which is all the effects of the pandemic and how to reduce the most harm for the most people at the least cost. And so that's why I was really excited um, when we got connected by, by Tom uh, to talk about this. Thank you, likewise. And, and the only question, of course, in terms of the practical utility of this discussion, which we're gonna thoroughly enjoy, and, and ideally will benefit some people, you know, at least in terms of um, inspiring some rumination, is timing. You know, I wonder, I wonder if at this point in the pandemic, anything we say is going to change the inertia of it all, right? It really does seem like inertia. Now, Isaac Newton is, is driving the bus at this point, right? <laughs> F equals MA, yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, in the early going, I thought, okay, if we have the right conversations with the right people in the right places and enough people hear them, it'll make a difference. Um, but we're so polarized. We were so dysfunctional through all of the critical early going because we didn't have grownups running the country, which was, you know, I mean, really the tragic confluence of one of the greatest public health crises of all time, and certainly the greatest in living memory, can join to utterly inept federal leadership in the United States. Absolute disaster. 
you know, I mean, we, we just reap the whirlwind. Yeah. And you know, what, what's interesting though, is I think even in the early days of this, you know, you and I were both kind of out there speaking about what was considered a contrarian viewpoint, which is, hey, after the initial sort of fear-induced and also I think appropriate lockdown environment where we said, we don't know this virus, we don't know what's going on, we don't have good data out of China, we don't have good data yet on anything, let's, let's take a pause and then learn as much as we can, so then we can spin up a response that's actually awake instead of you know this unconscious reactive thing. But what ended up happening is, and I think a piece of it is that federal, you know, this kind of tone where we've politicized everything. And I think I think actually the 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 you know the left and the right are both guilty of this. You know, if you're being if you're standing in a transpartisan viewpoint, looking at this, going, okay, these guys are catastrophizing, these guys are denying, nobody's leading, and what ended up happening is everyone went with their moral palette. Like I believe in uh, you know liberty versus oppression, autonomy versus communion. I believe in care versus harm, fairness versus cheating. Well, those are going to ch- put you down a path. And you recently put an article out on on, on LinkedIn that I thought was beautiful. It was this, this paths in the snow that were trod. And you were like, you know, it's really easy to take the path that's already paved and there's two. So pick one, polarize, go down it and forget the nuance or the fact that sometimes it's hard work trudging through the snow to find a truth that's more complex than the black and white. Thank you. I was just about to mention that. Yeah. So we had a nor'easter. We had a foot and a half of snow. I hike routinely in the woods outside my home. And, you know, I, I have... Uh, uh, routes that I take. And of course, there, there, there are blazed trails there, but you know, do you go left or right of a given tree? You know, those kinds of things. I have a preference. But when you've got 18 inches of snow and somebody's gone before you and packed down the snow, you go the way the snow is packed. It's just, you know, it's really hard work going through the deep snow. Exactly. I, I really do think ideology is like that. So, you know, I, I think everybody who isn't absolutely in the middle leans a bit left, leans a bit right. And so choosing between, you know, the left or the right trail is easy, but you may not go all the way to the left or all the way to the right if you have the option. But very early in the pandemic, we were left with no option because, you know, I think the the left view, which was catastrophizing, but also moral preening. You know, if you don't do everything to protect every last person from SARS-CoV-2, you're a genocidal maniac. Yeah, yeah. the, the, The accusations and some of the comments were really just you know, unbelievably uh, harsh. And, well, you know, we don't do everything to protect every last person from car crashes or heart disease or die. I mean, are, are we genocidal maniacs for letting our kids ride school buses? Some some kids are hurt and killed, you know, in the commute to and from school. Is, is that crazy? Is that unconscionable? You can't live a life with zero risk. The, the only thing required to be at some risk of dying today is living today. And, and we all accept that every day. There's a risk crossing the street. There's a risk getting in your car. There's a risk with absolutely everything you do every day. But somehow with SARS-CoV-2, very early on, it was catastrophizing and the only acceptable risk is zero risk. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just unrealistic. But that was one of the trails in the snow. Pick that one or liberate my state. The whole thing's a hoax. Get off my civil liberties. The, this virus isn't serious. We don't need to respect it you know, everybody in the water, never mind the sharks and riptides, grandma will be fine, you know, which was equally extreme in the other direction. So yeah, I, I weighed in early and said, not so, you know, and, and, you know, here's the other thing, Zubin, I, I think we, along with killing expertise, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of the, the, the rejection of 
um, elitism. Elitism has become a bad word, unless you're talking about elite forces in the military, right? That's still good. But, you know, for the most part, elite is bad until you need it. Right? If you've got a child who needs a, a brain tumor removed, you want the world's most elite neurosurgeon, right? It, it, elite is bad in principle. It's good in practice. But in principle, now elite is bad. Expert is bad. The other thing that we seem to have killed off is nuance, right? We're a clickbait, soundbite society. So, you know, give it to me in the most dumbed down form and make it extremely yes or extremely no, extremely right, extremely wrong, extremely right, extremely left, no nuance. Well, you know, actually managing one of the great public health crises of all time absolutely ineluctably requires nuance. You don't have to like that. Too damn bad. It's just true. And so, no, it's not all one way or the other. We're not going to protect every last person from this virus, no matter what we do. We don't protect every last person from any infectious disease. On the other hand, we do need to protect as many as we possibly can. We just want to make sure we don't hurt more people than we help with the policies we implement. So my position at the start and my position now, and, and you know, some of the things that I've talked about, I, I got wrong. I, I don't think there's anybody who, who has opined about the pandemic who has been right about everything. Mike Osterholm, you know, one of the world's greatest pandemic response experts, was opposed to masks before he was for masks, kind of like the CDC. You talk to Paul Offit, who's, who's awesome, you know, and, and Paul admitted he was just way off about the mortality. We've all been wrong. So I was wrong about when it was going to end. You know, I, yeah, me I too. Of, I looked at what, yeah, I looked at what happened in New York City, what happened here in the Northeast and said, OK, if we extrapolate that, you know, we can hope that this will end early fall. Yes, it didn't. I was yeah. wrong. OK, me too. Um, but the, the basic policy response, everything that's happened since the beginning has simply reaffirmed to me the goal should have been total harm minimization. And the right way to do that is the way we do everything in public health, risk stratification. You know, we don't, it, we, we rarely do one size fits all. The things that we apply to adults and kids differ. Uh, the, the guidance that we provide to people with different health conditions differ. Uh, whether or not it's safe to drive depends on your age and your eyesight and, you know, a number of factors. Well, you know, whether or not it's safe to navigate through this pandemic depends on your native health, depends on your age. And we could have, we, we absolutely did have the means to generate public health policy that was nuanced. And I completely agree with you, by the way. And, and, you know, I wrote about this in the New York Times. And then this this concept was further developed in a column that Tom Friedman wrote in follow up to mine uh, when we conferred. The idea that we probably, no matter what, needed to lock down for some defined period of time to do reconnaissance. Look, we've got data out of Wuhan. We've got data out of South Korea. We don't yet know exactly how their experience will relate to the United States. We have a different epidemiology here. We have a lot more diabetes. We have a lot more obesity. Things may be different. We need a little bit of time to figure out everything we know and everything we need to know about this virus so we can appropriately aim at total harm minimization, minimize the harms of infection, and minimize the harms of our policy responses to the threat of infection, namely what we're doing to social determinants of health. And the best way to do that is to match the protection, match the remedies to the nature of the threat. The nature of the threat is going to vary with risk factors. We have some inkling about that. It was pretty clear out of Korea, 
Old age is a risk factor. So we're, we're going to be really careful with old people. Old age and frailty is an extreme risk factor. We had cause to know very, very early on, we should have put firewalls around our nursing homes, Yeah. right? 40% of the mortality in the US has been in nursing homes. That's incredible. It's nuts. I mean, just just really think about that. If you had done one thing, half the mortality would be less. So this idea of risk stratification, but but again, like again, in the polarized conversation that was happening, and I wanna add a point to this, which is our media and our, our social media, both, which are now really conflated into one thing, are rewarded yes. through polarization, through clickbait headlines, through fear, through all of this. and it. It 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 we're being played by these algorithms that even the creators of the algorithms don't understand. So it's much easier to send an angry, catastrophizing email. Look at everybody's. You're not. There's a kid who's sick. We better shut down all the schools, forgetting that there's all this harm that happens with that. But look at the sick child preying on empathy versus compassion. Compassion, a broad love in the face of suffering. Empathy, looking at one person, feeling their pain, reactively responding in a way that can be actually counterproductive. So all, all of this, I think, early on squandered that reset that we had in the initial in the initial pause of lockdown that you said as, totally as appropriate. And, and, and some of this is new, as you say. Some of this is social media and, and you know, our, our propensity to react to drama, I think, you know, is, is being exploited in new and creative ways and, and has been amplified by our exposure to it. But some of this is is as old as our interactions with storytelling. Mm. Uh, think about Don Henley's song, Dirty Laundry, right? Uh, you know, the fact that, you know, you, you're always going to lead with drama. My friend, John Tesh, whom you may know, media personality, um, Intelligence for Your Life is his radio program, says, if it bleeds, it leads. Yep. And I, I worked on air for Good Morning America for a couple of years, uh, nice. years ago. And, um, you know, hanging in the control room was a plaque that that said, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. I mean, that's just, you rock people back and forth and you keep them interested. So, you know, anytime we got comfortable with our understanding of the pandemic, it was time to rock us back on our heels with a new affliction. Uh, no, it's not safe for kids. And the, you know, the, the problem for me was that trained in epidemiology and, and public health, you, you don't make it through week one of Epi 101 without learning to ask what's the denominator. Yeah. So, okay, you know, one kid is, is terribly sick with the virus. It can hurt kids. First of all, what was that kid's health status to begin with? And, and a lot of that was obscured, by the way. You know, the headlines would tell us a young person is sick, a young person's died, a young health professional's died. You know, you have to read way toward the end or maybe even never be told this person had severe obesity or had you know, major chronic illness. But that was usually the case. Young, healthy people have a vanishingly low rate of really severe reactions to this virus. That was true in the beginning. It's true even now. But that's not dramatic. So, so we weren't given that information. Right. So th this has always been a problem uh, for for the public at the receiving end, you know, it's good news for the media. And that, that's the other problem here, Zubin. I mean, th this has absolutely been a field day, a feeding frenzy for the media. Oh, yeah. You know, if you work for the media, the idea that you can have an endless source of headlines, you know, drama, right? Yeah. And the other thing is, and, and this, this is a crucial, I, I actually did a, a peer reviewed commentary on this, facing the facelessness of public health. When you're trying to save the most people, and you know that really is the objective of public health, right? You know the, the the most possible good for all of us. 
Problem is all of us is none of us. All of us has no face. You can't love all of us. You can't feel deep compassion and empathy for all of us. Give me one of us. Give me your beautiful face. You know, I, I can understand you. I can look into your eyes. I, you know, you can tell me your story. I'm going to care deeply. Who the heck is all of us? So the public is impossible to love. The, the, the <laughs> thing that we've done a really bad job at conveying to professionals so that they can convey it to the public is there is no such thing as the public. That behind that veil of statistical anonymity, it's you and me and everybody else and our families and the people we love. And until we part that veil more effectively, we do a really horrible job of saying, okay, this is one tragic story and I really care about this person, but you know, what's happening to everybody else? And, and will my reaction to help this one person hurt a thousand? Because if so, those are a thousand people that also have faces and names and families. It's really remarkable, David, because we've, we've never really connected until like the last week. Everything you just said is 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 exactly what I've been saying when I when I talk about empathy versus compassion, affective empathy, feeling that one person's pain. Suzanne Summers on a telethon going that you could help this child in Africa for pennies a day. People cough up the pennies. Okay, yeah. here's a tragedy in Darfur with thousands of people that are relatively faceless. Oh, I don't care about that. I can't help. There's nothing there. And and that is if we could really feel compassion, which is this, this slightly more intellectual detached, but love and concern in the face of mass suffering, we would wanna help as many people as possible in the most effective way, but that's not how we're conditioned and it's not how the media works with us and it's not. So your job as a public health person is to look at the world that way, but I think a lot of our public health people have not communicated it in a way that I think is resonating with the public. Uh, as much. I agree with you. And, you know, we're, we're facing an uphill battle anytime we are opposing the native currents of evolutionary biology. So my principal work over the past 30 years has related to nutrition. Yeah. I latched onto that early as the signature means of adding years to life, adding life to years. You know, I didn't chose that because I care about food more than the next person. I chose that because I wanted the most expedient way to help improve the human condition. And you know, I think I think it was a good choice, but my interest in the pandemic is much the same. But when you think about nutrition, why is it so hard for people to eat well in the modern world? It's because the modern world makes it so easy to eat in ways that line up well with the inclinations endowed to us by evolutionary biology. We like salt because in a natural world, salt is hard to find. We like sweet because breast milk is sweet and mammals who don't like breast milk get a really bad start in life. Uh, but also because after that, the only sources of concentrated sugar in nature, fruits and honey, and they're great sources of energy. We like fatty food because it's a concentrated source of energy and energy was in short supply. And we like variety because it was hard to get. So, you know, I mean, basically enter the world of the drive through and all you can eat buffet. And of course, everybody is obese. I mean, we've just made that the path of least resistance. Every effort to fix that at the level of the individual basically is opposing the themes laid down by evolutionary biology, that's a, that's a tough fight. Mm. I think the same thing here, right? So, you know, when you're trained formally in public health and taught epidemiology and think about, you know, what's the denominator? If we do this for the one, what are we doing to the thousand or the 10,000 or the hundred thousand or the million or however many? Um, it, it's really hard to do because we are natively tribal. We are natively drawn to faces. 
And, and in a way, you can almost say, thank goodness, Zubin, that we can't feel the pain of, of every individual in every mass tragedy the world has ever known. I, I wrote a poem some years ago, If Sorrow Were of Stone. You know, you think about all the suffering humanity has endured over the ages, you know, killing fields and, you know, in every part of the world and the, the horrible abuses we've imposed upon one another. If all of that just added up and added up and added up, and we all felt it, how would you make it through a day, right? So we, we are substantially immune to communal suffering that doesn't directly involve our intimate circle. Yeah. So we need both. I, you know, I think we need stories linked to context. And, and that's where the media, I think, have for the most part, and th th there are rarefied exceptions that have been absolutely brilliant. And you know, I can't help but but shout out my, my now friend at the New York Times, Tom Friedman. I think his reporting on the pandemic has been brilliant, even though it's not really his wheelhouse. You know, he, his, his expertise is in sociopolitics. So he just, he, he kind of parlayed that into discussion of policy response. But, you know, we really have a hard time finding the context on our own and the media have a responsibility to provide it. So a child uh, got terribly sick with COVID. We're telling you this because it's important to know it can happen. However, we have evidence to suggest that thousands upon thousands of kids have been infected. And that suggests this is a very rare occurrence. The risk is very low. And, you know, there's reason to be concerned about other ways the pandemic could harm kids, such as, uh, you know, by closing schools and, and causing educational gaps, which will particularly be problematic for those already disadvantaged. See our reporting on that topic, you know, essentially connect the dots. The dots were never connected. As you said at the beginning of this conversation, you had a choice. You, you can either read the article about the one kid and look at that face and the, the anguished family, you know, who had a horrible case of COVID. Or you can read the articles about the devastating effects of closing the nation's schools, but the two never connect, right? Pick your path in the snow, but but the nuance in the middle, forget exactly. about it. Exactly. And, and, and so it's, it's been horrible. And so you're either a commentator for Fox News or you're a commentator for CNN, <laughs> right? There, you know, I think you've been on both. Like you're one of the few people who's like transverses the political divide. Like most people, it's like, you know, I'm going to pick, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to promote this. And, and it's crazy because you're absolutely right. Both are true and you have to make decisions that affect harm versus care for multiple people, which again, you're right. If we could feel everyone's pain, we would be incapacitated. And as doctors, you know, we're trained a little bit more in that cognitive empathy. Like we understand what they're going through, but we're not gonna feel it. Cause if we feel it, we don't function. And one thing you said, and you've said a couple times now that I think is important is you can add years to your life, which is great, but you need to add life to the years. And what we've done with the pandemic in our absolutism, either one way or the other, is we've said, listen, we're gonna make old people die alone in nursing homes isolated. We're gonna let people die in hospitals isolated with no visitors because we're afraid of infecting a family member or infecting staff, et cetera, because we're afraid, afraid, afraid. Well, now what you've done is you've given someone a fate that is worse than death, because we're so conditioned to fear death, we don't even know what death is, but we do know what life is, and we know how to screw that up, and we manage to do that when we take an absolute stand. So I'm curious, because when you talk about total harm minimization, how much of that factoring, we're gonna get into the details of that, but how much of that factoring is these intangibles of human suffering that we've created, you know, that creates scars and lasting tracks in the sand? Yeah. 
I, no, I, I think that's huge. And, you know, I experienced that up close and personal. My, my mother is 81. And, you know, we had conversations about the fact that, you know, I, I'm, I'm frightened of this virus. I, I don't want to get it. I'm equally frightened of, you know, dying of something else before I can hug my grandchildren again. Right. So, you know, I mean, we really needed to think about the bigger picture right from the start, even the people who most needed protection. If you're over 80, you're in the, the highest risk group. So my parents are both there. Uh, but even they say this is not our only concern. There are other ways this situation can hurt us. So th that was a critical need, I think, right at the start. And yeah, I mean, quality of life is huge. And, and interestingly, you know, the, the oldest people who are at the greatest risk of this have the least time left. And therefore, the quality of that time is most crucial. You know, I, that's been my impression, whether it's patients or loved ones. You know, when time starts getting short, you, you really want to squeeze every drop of value out of every day. And we took that away with these, these indiscriminate responses to the virus. And, you know, again, I, I think what we needed to do was talk about effective policies to, to mitigate risk. And then, you know, essentially look for ways to do that with policies, uh, potentially mandates, um, empower individuals to understand their risk, empower them to be part of the remedy in terms of managing it. Most critically, you know, I, I think if we had managed the waves, you know, we keep talking about waves of a pandemic, right? As if, you know, we're, we're just, we're standing on the shore and the waves are crashing into us and we get knocked over and we try to get up and we get knocked over again, it's just the waves. Well, no, I mean, you, you know what to do in a situation where the waves, get out of surfboard, take control, ride the waves, right? I mean, we, we should have been the waves, ridden the waves or even been the waves. And what I mean by that is, okay, so actually the risk differentials here are large enough that, you know, young, healthy people, you know, people under 50 without a major chronic disease, certainly people under 40 without a major chronic disease, very low risk. What, what if we shield everybody at, you know, moderate risk or above away from this virus and say, okay, you know, those of you in the low risk group who are willing, let's have you be back out in the world. And let, let's see how that goes. And, you know, if, if a month later, hardly anybody's been hurt and viral transmission rates have fallen really low because a month later, you know, essentially, I'm going to say that the heretical thing, <laughs> you know, herd immunity has developed in that low risk group. Well, then there isn't much virus circulating. We can have the next wave go out slightly higher risk. Right? We could have managed the waves, ridden the waves, managed the waves, been the waves. Instead, we were just victims of the waves. And, and even the people that we most needed to protect suffered as a result of that. Because as you say, indiscriminate policies, nobody can be with anybody. And yeah, I mean, people didn't just die. You know, they, they died isolated from their families and, and loved ones who, you know, frankly, in many instances were in much lower risk groups and okay, you'll be exposed to the virus, but we, that can be managed. Yeah. And, and you know, th this person should not check out alone. I, you know, I volunteered in New York at the, the peak of all this, I, I, as, as close to the peak as I could manage. It took a while to go through the bureaucracy and get back into the system. I'm not, I'm licensed in Connecticut, but not New York. And there's a little bit of a rigmarole, but by the time I got deployed, my colleagues in the ER in the Bronx, where I, I was working for a little bit, you know, told me, boy, we wish we had you last week. <laughs> last week was really- <laughs> Missed it by a week, it. yeah. You missed it by a week. But, you know, I was there and I was managing this stuff. So, I, you know, I had a, a woman, um, you know, sort of, 
a questionable call whether she'd need to stay in the hospital or not. She she was COVID positive, but you know her her O2 sats were good and looked like she might be okay to go home. But her her son, you know, was was incredibly anxious and you know he was out in the parking lot. So you know early in this. The, the, this dance, I got his cell phone number. So I'm taking care of her and then calling him in our parking lot so he could stay informed about what was going on. You had to do stuff like that. Yeah. It was just, you know, yeah, there were there were whole new experiences in, in medicine when families could not be together, uh, you know, as you're working your way through a crisis like this. That was, was weird. Yeah. You know, and so let's, because this, this piece about Total harm minimization and a more strategic surgical approach to this based on risk stratification. Now the pushback, and, and, and this is fascinating because you you know you were one of the signatories on the Great Barrington Declaration along with my friend Jay Bhattacharya and Jay's been on the show. Um, and what I liked about that declaration is again, it took this view that, hey, actually there's a way to look at this that's still a harm reduction approach. It's just not, shut everything down and, and catastrophize, right? Now, the pushback to that, and, and I did a piece saying, I don't even know why we need these declarations. We ought to, like, th this ought to just be a conversation that we have. It isn't a, you know, these paths. But what was interesting about it is the pushback was instant and and intense from a lot of people in public health and some scientists saying, yeah, but this is completely unfeasible because you know half the U.S. population has risk factors that put them at risk for COVID. Um, elderly people aren't just in nursing homes; they're mixed in with multi generational families. How do you protect them if you're letting kids go out and work and potentially get infected? Um, what you know, this is going to kill people and and destroy lives. I mean, how do you how do you parse that? Well, first of all, just to, to back up, I, I, uh, Jay Bhattacharya is great, uh, thoughtful, compassionate, concerned, you know, just a great public health professional and inevitably, you know, got sort of tarred with the, the brush that comes out when, when you say anything about herd immunity or, or risk tiers. But he's been, he's been moderate, temperate, um, modest, thoughtful, provocative, but in very reasonable ways from the very beginning. So, uh, you know, I really appreciate his his work. Me too. And his commentary. Uh, you know, just for a minute, it's important to note, you know, my, my day job is all about nutrition and diet and chronic disease. And by the way, colleagues and I have published a couple of papers in the Journal of Emerging Infectious Disease on the prevalence of cardiometabolic risk factors that massively increase the risk of bad COVID outcomes. And mostly they are lifestyle driven, in particular, bad diet, lack of exercise smoking to a lesser degree. Okay, can I interrupt it, for a second? Because do you think that's why America has been particularly hard hit apart from it's policy? One of, the, one of the reasons, yeah. I, I think we've got a bunch of reasons, including the unbelievable ineptitude of our management of this, and our, our failure to protect the, the most vulnerable. But absolutely, we, you know, if, if you match us to other populations that, that had same level of exposure. So for example, Sweden, which famously didn't lock down at all, uh, you know, they, they have a relatively elderly population, but they're healthier than the U.S. And their death rate per million is considerably lower than ours. And I think that's because our cardiometabolic health, obesity rates, diabetes rates, heart disease rates coming into this were, were off the charts. So first, what I would say is, interestingly, here's a provocation to my, you know, my usual tribe is, is 
to the left. Right. They've been the, the ones, you know, who've been, I think, most inclined to burn me in effigy throughout this. Because we're the, been... we're the intellectual elite, right? We have to be lefties. <laughs> I mean, my, my tribe is the left. Right, my, right. my tribe has turned against me. They voted me off the island. But what I'd say to you, uh, tribe members, is, you know, I mean, it, 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 you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. You know, if you're going to moralize about we need to save every last life from COVID, well, okay, yes, it's horrible. 330,000 uh, of our, our fellow citizens have died of this virus. 500,000 people die of poor diet quality in the United States every year, 500,000. Uh, Op-ed in the New York Times, August 26, 2019, Darius Mozafarian, Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture of the United States, our food is killing too many of us. Yeah, uh, 500,000 premature deaths every year due to poor diet. So you know, where is your outrage there? Why aren't you advocating junk food Across the board needs to be banned. You know, junk cannot be food. Food cannot be junk. You know, again, I mean, our inconsistency is incredible. That's been my life's work is to try to mitigate that horrible toll. 500,000 every year. It's like a pandemic that never, ever ends. Mm. And because it's in slow motion, nobody even pays any attention to it. So again, if we're going to be morally outraged, let's at least be morally outraged, outraged consistently. And we're not. <laughs> and that, that always bothers me. That's also part of the big picture. Our failure to take our ideology and our principles and apply them in a consistent manner. You know, if you're consistently, look, anything that can harm people at scale, I oppose, I oppose adamantly, I'm outraged, I want it banned. Okay, I may not agree with you every time. Maybe I think that's too intrusive, but at least you're consistent. But I'm not seeing that consistency. Our tribe is horrendously inconsistent, right? Completely outraged about SARS-CoV-2 and completely contemptuous and neglectful of other things that actually kill more people. Okay. So I, I think Jay has been very reasonable. I think the idea that, you know, we, we want to minimize total harm. We want to minimize the harms of infection, minimize the harms of our interdiction policies. And then how do you get there from here? So, so what I argued, and, and I want to make clear, Zubin, because I think it's only fair to say this, it is not your job and it is not my job. And quite frankly, it's not the job of any one person to generate the umpteen page, let's arbitrarily make it up and say 1500 page policy manual for the nation's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But it absolutely could be done. So, you know, just to make clear to people that I think this is a, is a utterly plausible um, public health response. If I'd been in charge of anything, I would have said, while we determine the impact of this virus on the U.S. population specifically, we will lock down for and as quickly and expeditiously as we can, because in public health, you invoke the precautionary principle. Hmm. Always move people away from the direction of probable greater risk. And, you know, until we knew the, the exact magnitude of the threat this virus represented, move people away from the virus. So we're going to put, you know, basically, you know, a dome a protective force field around everybody because we don't have enough information. We're then going to collect the information we need by doing representative random sampling. At one point during all of this, I testified to the Senate Committee on Homeland Security. And, and one of the questions the senators were asking was about, well, you know, how do we function when we don't have the data we need and the data we need is millions of tests and we don't have the materials to do millions of tests. I said, we don't need millions of tests. Everything we think we know about dietary intake in the United States comes from representative random sampling in, in you know, 
20,000 people or less in the NHANES National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Everything we think we know about the most important behavioral determinants of health comes from representative random sampling and some number of thousands extrapolated to 330 million through the BRFSS, Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. We have SEER to track cancer-related epidemiology. In every instance, it's representative random sampling and if you get the right distribution to represent the whole population, you can extrapolate. And you've got error bars, but it's a lot better than flying blind. Mm. We were flying blind. So lockdown for as long as it takes to build a data pyramid. What is the what is the distribution of this virus? Who's been infected? Most critical thing to know is how often is this asymptomatic? I, you know, I think I imagine people who who tune into your podcast routinely are sophisticated on these topics and know that that every epidemic is like an iceberg you immediately see the most severe cases. The bulk of it is the less severe cases that you have to go looking for under the waterline. Same thing here. So, you know, when, when anytime you encounter a new infectious disease, you become aware of it because it's bad. You know, I mean, if a new infectious disease gave you an itch that you scratched and it went away, or, you know, you, you sneeze twice, who would care? We'd never, you know, it would be gone before we ever bothered to notice. No, it killed somebody. You know, it made somebody's eyeballs catch fire. Okay, that's weird. We need to look into that. Turns out that, you know, one person's eyeballs caught fire and, you know, 10,000 people had it and it didn't do much of anything. We had to go looking for those. Same thing with every outbreak. So, you know, it was very clear we needed to go looking for asymptomatic cases, build a data pyramid. Who's had this? Who's developed antibodies or is immune by some other means like memory T cells? Out of those who developed symptoms, out of those who sought medical care, out of those who wound up in the hospital, out of those who wound up in the ICU, out of those who wound up on the vent, and out of those who died. And as soon as we have a critical mass, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, you know, some number, but vastly smaller than the millions they were talking about, we can put error bars around our estimates and say, we've got a really good idea of who's at how much risk and now. We convene a Camp David summit. If we need to, we do it virtually, where we have world-leading experts in epidemiology, virology, immunology, and for that matter, economics, social determinants, ethics, you know, uh, gerontology, pediatrics. We all get together. We, we get all the best brains. We map out the full expanse of, of relevant considerations and say, where is the common ground to achieve total harm minimization? What are, what are we trying to do? First, you need the what, you need the destination. Once you have that, say, okay, you know, we, we're aiming to minimize the lockdown by doing a risk stratified approach uh, in implementing policies with a goal of minimizing total harms to people via disruption of social determinants and infection. Now we need to think about all of the nuanced permutations, right? That's what you were just asking. So, you know, you've got a kid who needs to go to school living with a parent who's got type 2 diabetes. The parents are healthy, but the grandparents live there and they're 80 years old. Well, you know, now you need an army of 300, 400, 500, let's say, you know, master's level people each assigned to one specific scenario to kind of map out what is the best guidance that is concordant with our objectives here 
for this particular scenario? Who has to wear a mask? Who has to socially distance? Who has to shelter in place? When do we recommend that a kid not go to school because of the level of risk in the household? And then ultimately, the government takes this massive information, 1500 page policy manual, puts it on an interactive website where every individual can log in, find their risk tier. It can be a color-coded risk tier based on your age, a few factors we need to know about your health. You could even quantify this. There, there are risk calculators. I, I have colleagues at a company called Everest Health. They have this very elegant COVID risk calculator. You can actually get specific percent probability of hospitalization, ICU, or death based on the details of your health and age. So every individual in the country should have had access to that information. And you should be able to get that information about other members of your household and you enter that in and it drops you into here are the recommendations for your family. We could have, this is the work. I mean, it, it sounded like a big project. This could have been built in two weeks and we're talking, this would have been done months and months and months ago and everybody would have been benefiting from this information since last February, March. So, so, okay. Or David, you could go on YouTube and listen to Plandemic 23, who said <laughs> the whole thing's a hoax, or you could take the approach that the scientists took, that the public health officials who said, no, actually that's too much work. That's too complicated. We don't know how to deal with this nuance. So we're just gonna do this, which then right. has all this collateral damage, which they're perfectly willing to suffer instead of Doing what you said, which is taking expertise, weaponizing it through actual, a little bit of hard work for a short period of time, using technology, which we're pretty damn good at using to yeah. get people to click on ads. So I'm pretty sure we could get it to calculate risk for us, in which case we could then answer the one question that no American can answer at this time, which is, what is actually my risk? Exactly of this yes. thing hurting me. Yes, right, it's maddening. So, you know, imagine a scenario, ideally, and again, that's why, you know, the, I, I love talking to you, the timing's frustrating, right? I mean, you know, the <laughs> stuff we're talking about needed to happen six months ago, eight months ago. And, and I'm not sure what good it can do now, um, but maybe it's not too late, uh, but imagine. First of all, I think it's important to note in, in the realm of psychology, Zubin, that, that the thing that most inevitably leads to despair, despondency, desperation, depression is helplessness. Mm. Helplessness. When your, your self-esteem is in the tank, you feel overwhelmed, you feel undone, and you feel like the things that are existential threats are beyond your control. That's when we fall apart. And it makes an enormous difference to give people some sense of power and control. Agency. And, you know, even if it isn't legitimate, it matters. But when it is legitimate, it makes a huge difference. So imagine, imagine a scenario where absolutely from the early going, everybody could have found out here is the best estimate of your risk for the bad outcomes none of us wants to have happen to us. You can get the same information about all the people you love and the people you live with. You can get specific recommendations about how to minimize that risk. And a couple things are included there. One, the general concept of hierarchical responsibility. Just like I reject the extremes of left and right, I, I reject the extremes of personal responsibility and public responsibility. You know, frankly, sometimes we're all in this together and the only thing that will protect us is action at the level of the body politic. It's just true. You know, I mean, frankly, you know, every parent could be really vigilant at the beach, but we've decided as a society, we want lifeguards. Mm. 
and you know pools should have fences around them and you know there's stuff we do collective decision making um so i reject the view that we have to choose between the two so hierarchical responsibility says some of this must be mandated it must be policy that shouldn't be more than it needs to be but it should not be less the government needs to do its job Part of its job is guiding other institutions with parameters, and maybe they've got a Chinese menu and can do some shopping, but they have to stay within the line. So if you're a school, if you're a university, if you're a, if you're a business, if you're an airline, you must comply with the government's requirements. But the way you do that, you have some latitude to decide what best fits your particular industry or business or location. And then finally, what can be deferred to individuals should be deferred to individuals. We should empower people. And then when you get to that third level of hierarchical responsibility, it's not just about telling people what to do. It's empowering them with, with options and understanding. And so here's how you can protect yourself and your loved ones based on your specific risk tiers. And by the way, we'll contextualize those for you. So your risk of a bad outcome from SARS-CoV-2 is this. Your child's risk is this. It's not going to be zero. Maybe that'll freak you out. But here's the risk of your child being injured in a given year if they just commute to and from school in a carpool or a school bus. And if the risk of being hurt by the virus is less than their risk of commuting to school, which you let them do every year, maybe you don't need to freak out about the virus. You just need to be careful it doesn't get transmitted to a loved one at much higher risk, right? So help people really understand, not just with numbers, you know, epidemiologists may understand what the numbers mean, but I think we needed to translate the numbers into a context that resonated with everybody. And then said, by the way, a huge part of our problem in this country, I mean, if you're over 80 years old, you're over 80 years old. Although if, if I may digress for just a second, invoke another friend of ours, Dan Buettner, uh, who gave us the blue zones. You know, in the blue zones, I, I, I've had, colleagues report back to me with some data that we've all managed to dig into. In the blue zones, being 80 is not like being 80 anywhere else, even during the pandemic. In the blue zones, 80 is like 60. Their risk of bad COVID outcomes, much, much lower. And, and for those who don't know, five places around the world where people most routinely live to be 100 don't get chronic disease. Well, you know, if you're much healthier to a much older age than other populations around the world, it stands to reason that your COVID age is actually lower than your chronological age, and, and that appears to be the case. The, the reverse is true in populations like ours where we have epidemic obesity or hyperendemic obesity and diabetes and heart disease and so forth. So again, uh, colleagues and I did a couple papers, uh, shout out to Mary Adams and, and uh, the, the others who, who did the heavy lifting there. And you know, we found six in 10 Americans have at least one major cardiometabolic liability, massively increasing COVID risk. Four in 10 of us have two or more, you know, meaning you can be 40 years old and you have the risk of an 85-year-old, basically. Well, there's never been a better time to address that, has there? I mean, you know, I've spent a career trying to talk people into addressing these chronic liabilities and, you know, nobody pays attention until after their first heart attack. We, we all know, everybody in preventive medicine knows this experience. It's, it's the Dean right? Ornish experience, right? Yeah. 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 But everybody gets religion after the first calamity, not before. Well, everybody's afraid of COVID hurting them immediately. And the timeline of that kind of activates the fight or flight response in ways that the threat of diabetes and heart disease don't. Well, let's take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. By the way, folks, all this stuff, which would have been good for you anyway, because vitality really is the gift that keeps on giving, will protect you acutely against COVID. And the benefits of lifestyle as medicine begin immediately. 
and and this gets really interesting really fast, Zubin, because you know we we can demonstrate in a couple of different ways that if you eat one high quality meal versus a you know typical junky meal, it starts to alter your immune system's capacity to deal with a virus within hours, mm. within hours, you know, mm. not even days. And, and you can measure that with endothelial function responses. So better, better vascular behavior, better blood flow. And with chemotaxis, you actually alter chemotaxis in the postprandial period. So the way bl white blood cells react to provocations like a virus differs markedly in the aftermath of a really bad meal or a really good meal. Now, of course, the benefits accrue over time. The longer you eat well, the longer you're active, the better the care you take of yourself, the more you start to really reverse the metabolic damage, the bigger the difference to your immune system. But the benefit begins immediately. We could have, and in my view, should have been selling that from very early in the pandemic. There's never been a better time for a national health promotion campaign. Folks, we are in this together. Let us do everything we possibly can to support one another in a an effort to make ourselves, this nation healthier, because that will protect our loved ones and ourselves from this virus. And by the way, the benefits of it won't go away afterwards. There will be less diabetes, there will be less heart disease. We'll take advantage of the acute threat to pursue chronic health. It, it, and, and yeah, it's almost as if this virus was a pointer to that. It's like, okay, let's design a virus to most exploit what we're worst at, which is eating healthily, forming community connections that lower stress and cortisol <laughs> and insulin. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, uh, you know, me meditation which improves immune function and generally lowers cortisol and stress and all these things that we ought to have been doing. Now comes this virus that's like, okay, I'm going to start to hurt people that haven't been doing this. And but this is the tragedy though, right, David, and you know this as a public health person. It, it's not really the individuals fault, if you're gonna use that word fault. We've designed a system whereby it is the default to be, eat the standard American diet, which is a garbage diet for most humans. It, it, most humans don't tolerate that diet in a way that is healthy. There's probably a small percentage that can eat anything, the standard American diet, and they, and they don't die. But most people can't. And so here's a virus that says, wake up, wake up, wake up. We did a show with uh, Ron Sinha, who's a, a doctor here, an internist here, and, and he, that was his whole thing. Here's how you can eat better, de-stress, and, and think, and, he calls it training for the COVID marathon. So if you're gonna get infected, don't you wanna be in the best possible shape to run that marathon? And I, I completely agree. And and again, just like you know, the, the themes of evolutionary biology matter for our dietary preferences, they matter in terms of the poignancy of one person's face versus statistics about public health. They, they matter here as well because our, our nervous systems were designed for survival on the savanna, and you know there there were no threats on the savanna that came at us in years and decades, so we're we're blind to that. Effectively, you know we're, we're blind to those threats. We need we need threats that are measured in in seconds and minutes. So you know COVID feels like that. It feels like I could I could go outside and I could contract this. It's waiting for me. That fear activates a response that chronic disease doesn't. And, and you know, I think, I think it's partly the native hardwiring of our nervous system, again, endowed to us by the exigencies of survival and natural selection. I think it's partly the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt or at least complacency. So, you know, we've always had high levels of obesity as far back as anybody can remember. And so that's just, that's just the way it is, right? So we don't have to get all upset about that. We've always had high levels of diabetes. That's just the way it is, although that's not really true. Mm. Uh, you know, I think I think I 
I predate you a bit. And, you know, when I was in medical training, we talked about adult onset diabetes. Yeah. Type, type two was adult onset because kids didn't get it then. And, and I watched it undergo this epidemiologic transformation first, where more and more kids were getting it. And then, you know, we, we superimposed a change in nomenclature to make it okay. Let's call it type two. Let's, let's not be age specific because the disease no longer is. And, you know, I, I think we should have called it adult onset diabetes happening for unconscionable reasons in children. Ah, uh, I know? agree. I mean, it's, it's, man, a it's a crime. Yeah. It's a mouthful, yeah. but that's the reality. That's what we, it is. We, we, made, we peddled junk food to our kids. We made them obese. And consequently, a chronic disease of midlife afflicted them. And we did not see the outrage that we see about SARS-CoV-2. We certainly should have. But absolutely, I agree with you entirely. I, I see no... No place in any of this for blame or fault. People used to be lean routinely, not because they had self-discipline or personal responsibility that we lack, but because they lacked multicolored marshmallows for breakfast that we have, right? I mean, you know, we, we, we completely changed the defaults in society. Wait, America runs on Duncan. Wait a minute, uh, David. Are you making fun of me Lucky Charms? Because <laughs> they're delicious and they're also <laughs> vegan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They're magically delicious. Yes, no, I've heard. I, I wouldn't know from personal experience, but I, I have heard that. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, our, our culture is responsible. But, you, you know, you can't count on your culture to save you. What, what I've written about in many of my books is the idea that what we ultimately do need is a cultural revolution. We, we, we want health to be a national priority, a family value, something that we all think about maybe just a bit more like wealth, right? Something we actively invest in, cultivate, want to share with our loved ones, want to pay forward to our children. Why not, right? Yeah. So if you don't have your health, you don't have anything, but do we invest in it? Do, do, do we nurture it? Do we incubate it? Do we try to grow it? Do we try to share it? Do we try to pay it forward? No, because our culture talks us out of all of that because the status quo is fantastic for a lot of really powerful entities. You know, Basically, big food makes a fortune making us fat and sick. Big Pharma makes a fortune treating diseases we never needed to get. They're perfectly happy with the status quo. So we need enough outrage to overcome all of that. And no, this isn't our fault. We're, we're victims of this. But oh, woe is me. I'm a helpless victim. Isn't going to help anybody. So while we are working to transform our culture, so we are more of a blue zone culture where the native currents in our culture lead toward health rather than away from it. You've got to take matters into your own hands. So I, I've spent my career talking about skill power, and I think this pertains to COVID too. So I, you know, I've talked about willpower. It, you know, that's that's where you're interested enough to do the work of finding out what you need to know. Intentionality. You know, never, yeah. Yeah. Learning what you never knew, you never knew. But then to do something with it requires skill power. So I could say, hey, I really am interested in flying a plane. Um, what's involved in flying a plane? Wow, gee, those cockpits are pretty complicated. Okay, well, but I really want to fly a plane, so I'm just going to fly a plane. I'm going to crash. No, now I have to learn how. If you know, if my willpower is sufficient to engage, the next thing I need is skill power. Okay, I want to learn. I'll take lessons, be a pilot, right? And and it, we've all done this at points in our lives. Everybody learned the alphabet. Everybody learned to read. It was hard back in the day. But, you know, it's an incredible advantage to be able to do that for the rest of your life. We, most of us learned to ride bikes. We, you know, we fell off a few times, skinned our knees. It, you know, we paid a price, but then had this, this lifelong skill. Healthy living takes skill, too. 
And whether you apply it as defense against obesity, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, or you apply it as defense against the acute threat of COVID and whatever the next pandemic agent will be, either way, you can get there from here, but you need to be empowered. You, need, you do need some degree of willpower to at least be interested in and respect the value proposition, but then you have to say, okay, I'm in somebody help me. I want to acquire the skills. You know, when I, I went to kindergarten and first grade. That's how I learned to, to read and count. Where do I go to get the skills for healthy living, right? Help me out. And my home turf, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is all about that. Uh, the True Health Initiative is all about that. Uh, you're an important agent of that effort as well. So, you know, and people have to find the credible voices they can count on to guide them. But that, that should be a national priority. So, 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 and I think I want to put a, a particular spin on this, finding credible voices to guide you has been one of the great challenges of the internet era and of the pandemic. So I'm gonna say this with conviction, people, whether they're anti-maskers or you know pro-universal lockdowners or mask shamers or whatever you wanna label people, I, I feel like I, you, you've got a flag shop here. Pick your flag. Yeah, pick your flag <laughs> and stick it right. What tribe do you belong to? Okay, here are the flags you can choose from, right? Because if you if you if you pick the wrong flag and you're a lefty, flag shop. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna be screwed. If you if you're a righty and you pick the wrong flag, oh man. And so yeah, yeah. right, but but the truth is everybody who's shopping for those flags is trying to be good based on what their particular flavor, we were talking off camera a while back about Jonathan Haidt and his book, The yeah. Righteous Mind. They're all trying yeah. to find their moral taste buds, uh, perfect balance. And a, a liberty versus oppression moral taste bud is going to say, you know what? I don't know that I want people telling me to wear a mask and clothes, not go to my restaurant and so on. And I'm still a good person. I think that's wrong for them to do that. And if you tar that person as some kind of grandma killing villain, you're done. It's it, just nothing you, good you coming. Pu you push them to a more extreme that's right. version of their native opinion. Exactly and, right. And that's then, what we've been doing on them. And then you know what happens is they go on YouTube and they find a video called Plandemic or you know, America's frontline doctors, hydroxychloroquine, whatever it is. And they go, you know what? I like those guys because they're speaking to me. Like this right. does feel like cons conspiracy of elites who use big words like David Katz telling me, <laughs> telling me what to do. And I'm like, I, I don't have that vocabulary and I take offense. And also I feel that this is very wrong morally to me. So, you know, I think we have to respect that. That's been a challenge for me because I, by nature, I'm very judgy and kind of an a-hole. When I had to, <laughs> when I had to open up and say, Gee, no. that's quite a confession." Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's just, my my regular tribe knows this as a fact. They're like, "Oh yeah, he's just speaking. And they, they love you." Yeah, okay. strangely, because they're probably this right. cut from the same cloth. But but this idea that we have to communicate across these moral palettes, and and that's been a challenge, I think, for many people because they stake their flag and they put. Twitter is a great example, like. There's no better place to virtue signal what your tribe is than Twitter. It's like, you okay, to take a avatar picture of you in a mask, add, wear a damn mask into your thing, and suddenly you your, your tribal identity is established. But how are you gonna influence someone who is on the other side of that argument? Yeah, yeah, so whether someone is on your side or not on your side, I, I think the reliable indications of reasonable thought are much the same. 
certainty is always a red flag for me. You know, we, we've yeah. been moving through an unprecedented public health crisis. I mean, the, the closest thing was 100 years ago. That was different. We don't know what's around the next pan, and every expert has been wrong about something. So anybody who tells you anything with absolute certainty, run like hell in the other direction. Ah, I agree. My advice. Yeah, and I, I felt that way about every clinician I've ever met too, right? I mean, the, the scariest thing a doctor can tell you is I know for sure how to do this and what's going to happen. No, I, I want a doctor says, I don't know. I, I have doubts, but you know, here's what makes sense in light of what we know and what we don't. So there's uncertainty. Honest people acknowledge uncertainty. Yes. Uh, hucksters do not. And so anybody who doesn't acknowledge uh, uncertainty is dangerous. Uh, and and that, that's absolutely true, whether they're saying exactly what you want to hear or the antithesis of what you want to hear. It doesn't make a difference. And then, you know, frankly, expertise does matter. Uh, you want people who speak a language you can understand. But, you know, I, 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 somebody sent me a video I was watching earlier today about, you know, if, if you've got a complicated plumbing problem, you know, you don't want your neighbor who says, well, I've never fixed that before, but let me give it a shot. You want a plumber, you know, who's much more likely to get it right. And, you know, we want experts flying airplanes, particularly if they have to land them in the Hudson River and on and on it goes, right? I mean, it actually matters to be trained to do a particular thing. Same is true of public health, same is true of medicine. So the combination of I'm not sure, but I have expertise, let me tell you how I see the situation. I think that's valuable. Uh, I also think context is crucial. Someone who says, you know, here's why you shouldn't wear a mask or here's why you should wear a mask, who says absolutely nothing about countervailing evidence. Yes. There's always countervailing evidence, right? So you, you, you can easily find online now the arguments against mask wearing because there've been RCTs, the famous Danish study that showed that it was not helpful for the person wearing the mask and therefore masks are useless. Well, not so fast. First of all, really hard to study the effects of you wearing a mask on other people not getting an infection really hard to do. You can't study everything important with an RCT. You need that context. Fellow parents, what do you think about your kids running with scissors? Bad <laughs> idea, right? Well, where's the RCT that proves that? Where's the meta-analysis that says kids should not run with scissors? Not everything important comes with an RCT or from an RCT. That's part of the context. So I, I look for uncertainty. I look for balance. Yep. I look for context. I, I look for someone willing to acknowledge that Here's my point of view based on what we know, but there is evidence to the contrary as well. And I, I, I think I'm going to reject it because the evidence in favor of A is greater than the evidence for B, but it doesn't mean there's nothing to say about B. And that's honest that, you know, life is like that, but that, you know, now suddenly we're in the realm of nuance. We've come outside of those lanes in the snow. We've laid down our opposing flags Right. Um, and we're really bad and, at doing any of that. And, stuff and, and vastly more ATP is required to do that work. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Vastly and, more. And what, whether you're, you're trudging through deep snow where there, there is no prior path or you're seeking a balanced, nuanced understanding of a complex situation that requires you to hear what they're saying and what they're saying and separate baby from bathwater in both cases, you're exactly right. A lot more ATP is required. Yeah. But, you know, now we're back to, you know, the wisdom of the ages, right? Worthwhile things tend to take effort. Take effort. Same is true of understanding. If you don't apply some effort to understanding, you'll just be led in the direction of least resistance. And ultimately, you'll wind up renouncing both science and sense as a result of that. And th I think this is the standard to which I try to choose guests for the show 
is they have that capacity. You are definitely a shining example of that, David. I mean, I, I think it's been, and, and it's funny because we share we share respect for people that have similar ways of looking at the world. You know, Jay's a good example. Like when, when I had yeah. Jay in here, he could easily take a very partisan, divisive stance on what he's saying. And he's like, no, I, I said, isn't it heartbreaking that this is happening? He goes, I'm heartbroken by all of this. Like the the, hurt, the harm of closing the schools and the people that are dying. Like, so let's figure out a way to, you know, Monica Gandhi, who's quite evangelical about masks, but she says, you know, let's say we're wrong, which it's possible, sure. Well, then what's the harm that we've done? Well, we might've hurt people who have who are hard of hearing. We might've, you know, caused some liberty versus oppression people to be upset, but it's not on balance, I feel like. So those kind of conversations are the ones we need to have. And you talked about picking out credible people misinformation. If people are absolutists, just stop listening to them. If people are absolutely certain, and this, like you said, it goes in medicine too. And when you're online, if people keep um, moving the goalpost, like you say, okay, well then here's the evidence for that. They go, well, actually, well, this then, and, you know, that's a sign that this is probably somebody you're never gonna convince and it's misinformation. The idea that, you know, they're cherry picking data and being absolute about it. You know, like people are picking this data out of Wuhan saying, oh, look, asymptomatic cases don't transmit disease. I don't know if you've seen this data where they looked at a lot of people and they said, look, a lot of them that were asymptomatic by PCR, we tested them, they're positive for PCR. In their households, there was no transmission. Well, okay, first of all, you gotta ask these very difficult nuanced questions. Is that PCR test a false positive? Were they pre-symptomatic or truly asymptomatic? Um, how, what was the follow-up? What was the nature of the trial? I mean, there's a million questions, but you're just gonna cherry pick to support what you already believe. Well, then that's not a very helpful discussion, you know? And, and the truth there is a perfect example of where there's likely to be nuance. Many people who are asymptomatic probably have a lower viral load than people with severe infection. That's right. Many reasons, maybe related to their exposure, maybe related to their health immune system response. But the lower your viral load, the less virus you have to share with the rest of the world, the less infectious you are. So, you know, it's probably both true. So some asymptomatic people do transmit depending on the immune response of the people they're with, the intensity of the exposure, the length of the exposure, but they're probably less likely to transmit. Just It makes sense. And, you know, that would be another thing I would argue for is when I agree with everything you just said, you really don't want to renounce science because it's too pointy headed. It's too erudite. I mean, you know, so much of the way the modern world works is based on science, right? So you, you, you cannot watch, can't listen to podcasts or log into the internet and oppose science. Yeah, you look know, what we're like, doing now. <laughs> science doesn't work, you know, you tweet that. Okay, so you just organized electrons and sent them through this magical realm of cyberspace because why? Scientists made it possible, yeah. right? You can beam your thoughts to one person on the far side of the globe instantaneously. Why? Because science works. The, the evidence that science works is all around us all the time. We're soaking in it. So you can't renounce science. But, you know, I think a lot of scientists renounce sense. And, and I've argued that, you know, science has the power of a freight train to take us to places that are hard to reach we wouldn't otherwise ever reach. But sense lays the tracks. And neither one is worth much without the other. You drive a freight train without tracks, you get a train wreck. Uh. You, you, sense is where you ask the right questions. Sense is where you think of all the, yeah, but. Okay, so, you know, science might say, I did a study that showed, you know, there wasn't transmission in a household from asymptomatic people. Sense says, well, yeah, but, you know, 
what about the fact that we don't completely trust the tests and maybe the people in the household were the ones who already had the infection and that's where this asymptomatic person got it in the first place. Right, and right. What about and what about and what about? That's sense, actually. Yeah, yeah. The two are critically dependent on one another. And that would be the other thing I would look for. Somebody who speaks to you, if they have real expertise, they should be invoking science and make that clear. But if they renounce sense and just think that, you know, every answer, if you do the right kind of study, that is the one source of human understanding. Again, I've, I've raised five kids to adulthood, always thought running with scissors was a bad idea. Remain confident about that to this day. Have yet to see the RCT on the top. matters <laughs> too. But, but by the way, can we do an RCT on uh, closing outdoor dining in California? Like what? <laughs> How is that? I mean, that's neither sense nor science. Like that's neither. At that point, public policy just gone off the rails. And this is why, you know, some of what the, you know, the extreme moral preening of the left has has precipitated the extreme rejectionism on the on right. right you yeah. know, I mean, you're basically trampling on civil liberties to no gain. You yeah. know, there's no evidence that, that this is helping anybody and it's hurting people and restaurants are going out of business. And then those people you know, wind up in, in desperate situations, their life's work and dreams are being ruined and their health is being ruined as a byproduct of that. What about them? Don't yeah. they count? And, and again, total harm minimization says, yeah, they count. They do count. Those are real people too. You know, the, the we, we talk about the economy in, in terms of numbers, but behind those numbers are real people, real lives. And that's why total harm minimization can, matters. So. Can, can I say one other thing? We're already running up on, I don't know how long we've been talking, but I just got to ask this because this just relates to that. So I, I'm sure you heard about this whole Stanford brouhaha recently where with the vaccine and how they were relying on an algorithm to distribute it. And the algorithm was probably smarter than some humans and also dumb. So it had no sense, but it had a lot of science. And the algorithm basically said, okay, let's look at these different factors, like how old you are, what your risk factors are, what your exposures are, and do some math and say, okay, these are the people who should get it first. And it basically ignored all the resident physicians because they were young and they didn't have a specific location. They're all over the hospital, but now these are people taking care of COVID patients. But what's interesting is from a purely dispassionate harm minimization standpoint, that may well have been the correct answer because those residents who are in their early 20s without comorbidities, say, assuming that that's true, are actually, and they're wearing PPE, are actually at relatively low risk, even compared to an older attending with one comorbidity who sees less patients, but is still in the hospital, exposed to a lot of people who do see patients. So it's really complicated to get these sort of calculations correct. An algorithm is only ever as good as what we put into it. And inevitably, there's a lot of science, and it's really hard to build sense into an algorithm, which is why artificial intelligence, as promising as it is, is, is still quite immature. Uh, you know, essentially, we want it to be wise, we want it to be sensible, and we've got a ways to go to get it there. So for now, the combination of the artificial intelligence of an algorithm plus the human intelligence that involves sense make a powerful partnership. So consider the fact, you know, that there's been a lot of debate, Zubin, about the extent to which the vaccines are going to prevent transmission. Right. We don't know. But they, well, but, but they, they, you know, if we look at the history of public health, I mean, you know, if you can't get the native infection, I mean, the, the, the vaccine doesn't give you the virus. Right. So if the vaccine, if we're confident that the vaccine prevents you from getting sick with the virus, then either you're not getting the virus at all because your immune system fought it off or you're, you know, you're processing a much lower viral load and you're processing it much faster. Yeah. 
all of that translates almost inevitably, just, just mechanistically into a massive reduction in your transmission. The residents, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, you know, I, I've been reading about this issue and I sympathize with the residents. They're afraid. They're on the front lines. They're working these very long hours. Yeah. You know, first of all, the sleep deprivation of residency may be a significant immunosuppressant. I think that's an important concern. They're very stressed. Great point. But I, I would say that the primary reason to, to put residents way up toward the top of the list is their level of contact with patients is generally much, much greater than the attendings, you know, who spend less time in the hospital. Pure viral load. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, again, and it's become a heretical term. I think that's silly. It's it's a lack of understanding. We are aiming at At herd herd immunity. immunity. Mm -hmm. Whether you get there because everybody's had the infection and, and everybody who could bear it has borne it, or you are getting there with a vaccine either way when enough of us are immune to this damn thing and it stops circulating that's when the pandemic ends one way or another this ends with herd immunity so i I would argue that if the residents have the potential to get this and transmit it to patients uh you know if we're counting on ppe if ppe were perfectly protective and we had enough of it then why why is any health professional at the front of the list, right? Yeah. And then basically we should just worry about the people who can't get it because they'll get too sick. Right. But I think the reason that frontline professionals are on the list is we don't think PPE is a perfect protection. If you're exposed a lot, right. you may get it. Well, residents are exposed a lot. And if residents are exposed a lot and may get it and they're young and it's not going to kill them, at least not very often, okay, that maybe reduces their place in the queue. But then again, if they can get it, and they can get sick with it, they can transmit, transmit it. it. And they're, you know, they, they have intimate contact with patients all over the hospital every day. So I'm on their side. Now, I think I think there are all sorts of reasons why the algorithm is a little bit inattentive to some relevant considerations. And again, it, it I, I've been reading a lot about this issue, you know, as if we, we need to debate it, will the vaccines be effective at preventing transmission to others? Okay, you know, we don't have the studies to prove it because phase one, two, three trials that were intended to get this rapid warp speed authorization of vaccines did not address that issue. But the history of immunization tells us if a vaccine is effective at protecting an individual, it's going to cut down that person's transmission of the pathogen to anybody else too. So so I, I agree a thousand percent. And in fact, communicating that, look at how much ATP it took just to even explain what you just did about the <laughs> residents, right? This is not- I'm a, exhausted. Yeah, yeah you're we've exhausted. Gotta, we've got to I mean, end this damn it's, 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 it's so easy to just say, yeah, blah, just blah, blah, or- to go, okay, well, here are the considerations, and this is why I actually think residents should get vaccinated. Now, with the, hard work. it's it a really lot is. of hard work, and but that's the work you gotta do. Now, here's the thing, if people trust you, they could then go, well, David's put in the damn hard work, I'm gonna listen to his explanation, he's gonna give me pros and cons, and I'm gonna make an educated decision. That's how we ought to be making our decisions. By the way, my mother is all over that. <laughs> I, she, I think she's the only one, but I know for sure she's, yep, I trust him. You trust this guy. My, my, my parents who are the same age as your parents uh, are, are also will watch my show for their medical advice. And I'm like, you know, and then I get uncomfortable. Then I'm like, I, you know, I know what I don't know. And actually I'm comfortable with uncertainty. So don't take anything I say without a grain of salt. But the, the interesting thing about this vaccine transmission thing is this has come up a lot in a lot of my audience who are very liberty versus oppression kind of minded. And they say, well, I don't understand it. We, we we raced to get this vaccine. It's a heroic effort, science. And now they're telling me I still need to wear a mask and social distance once I've gotten the vaccine. And I'm like, I don't know that that's the best 
communication strategy. We ought to talk about why, how this thing works, like what you just did, which is, you know, this, yeah, we haven't studied it directly, but all historical <laughs> vaccines have done this. And you create a herd immunity threshold by reducing targets for virus to infect, viral load is lower. You can be careful in the short run, but man, let's put an endpoint on it because otherwise people are just, they're gonna feel despair, you know? Right. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah. So that being said, I think we did a thing today, David. <laughs> it was really a joy. I, I, I just love talking to people like you, which are, unfortunately, it's a rarer conversation than is, is common these days that can see these sides and communicate them articulately, who have the expertise and the experiences, particularly in communication, who have an adorable dog and an amazing handcrafted home office that they carpentered <laughs> themselves. Seriously, yeah. Where, where do you find guys like that? You just right? can't. I mean, I mean, I would ask Dr. Oz, but you know, he no, he doesn't build anything himself. So, all that being said, man, I really want to thank you. Will you come back so we can go deeper on some of these things and some future shows? It, it, it's been an absolute pleasure, and it, you know, I, I'm sure that the people who watch you routinely already know this, but you're great. You know, thoughtful. It's not easy to to lead a conversation like this that flows so freely, explore so many things. To contribute as much as you do, because you know, I mean, your your comments here have been as important as mine, and, and yet, you know, make your guests feel like they can say everything they need to say. So it, it's really a pleasure chatting. It really feels just like a conversation. It just so happens you're recording it, and maybe other people are watching. At least my dog is. My mother will. <laughs> your parents will. I, you know, we've got an audience of four easily. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> That's all <laughs> that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let, let's do a part two as soon as our our schedules allowed. That, that's tremendously generous of you. Thank you. And uh, guys, uh, ZPAC, I really enjoyed this conversation. If you did too, just share it. If you wanna support the work we do, become a supporter on any of the platforms, just go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. It keeps us basically commercial interest free, which is great because that means we're in no one's pocket, but yours. The only but we need to kiss has your name on it, which is creepy and also probably inappropriate. So I love you until next time we are out. Thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs>